So I want to talk to you about a man named Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte was born in 1927 in New York to a Jamaican woman and a Martinique father. Over the years, he'd been heralded as an amazing vocalist, actor, and activist. But since his passing last Tuesday on April 25th, 2023, many have written their tributes and shared fond memories about Mr. Belafonte. When most reflect on his life, they see the successes, but fail to remember how a lot of this came at the expense of his family and marriages. Today, we're going to look at Mr. Harry Belafonte in a different lens where we examine his closest relationships, marriages, and family. Welcome to episode two of I'll Tell You What. Hello, Islanders. Yes, I'm looking at both of you. <laughs> Welcome back. Can y'all believe we made it to the best month of the year? Anyway, I'm Ashley, the co-host of I'll Tell You What. If you're new here, I'll Tell You What is a weekly deep dive at some of the most epic engagements, weddings, and marriages that have occurred throughout Black history. Our trip down memory lane isn't met with malintent, but actually comes from a place of nostalgia, inspiration, and realism. Don't forget to follow us everywhere you can, including Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook. And if you want to support I'll Tell You What, head to our Etsy store and grab a few pieces of merch or just show some love. This helps me subscribe to the various news publications that are gated to get these stories that I'm telling y'all about. Get legitimate photos because also photos cost money and the good photos cost a lot of money. Hundreds for one picture. Anyway, but basically your support helps me put this podcast together for you to enjoy. But you know what? I understand not everyone has the cash like that. I get it. If you're low on funds, you could just support by sharing the podcast with a friend, leaving us a review or a comment, and following us everywhere you can. However you support, just know that I am truly, truly thankful. So all runners, islanders, let me know how did y'all love the first episode? Did you know all of that about the Womack family? Because I didn't. Let me know what you think, truly. You can always reach out through the contact form linked in the notes below or email I'll tell you what at aisle, A-I-S-L-E, at H-U-E-I-D-O dot com or at huido.com. Let's get into the real reason why you're here. When we come back from this quick break, we're going to dive into the marriages and relationships of Harry Belafonte. All right, so we're back. We have to begin with the story of Harry Belafonte and his first wife, Marguerite. Frances Marguerite Bird was attending Hampson Institute and was a psychology major. Now, Harry, on the other hand, was in the Navy and was staying in the makeshift barracks, as he called them, that were housed on the campus of Hampton. Now, Marguerite came from a proud middle-class family. Her family had house and her siblings were to be educators, aka they went to school, aka they had money to send them to school. She was pursuing a career in 
child psychology. Meanwhile, Harry was a ninth grade dropout, had a very fractured relationship with his family, and didn't know what he was going to do with his life. So initially, to no one's surprise, Marguerite was not interested. She was a part of an anti-sailor organization on campus. But when Harry spotted her, he was taken. Harry met Marguerite in the fall of 1944 at a campus social event. He danced with her and told her she better be nice to him because he might just end up marrying her. And she responded, has the world run out of other men? <laughs> like, she was not fooling with Harry at all. Now, some men would have taken the hint, but Harry saw that as a way to just keep at it because eventually she'd cave in. Over the next four years, Marguerite would continue pursuing her education and date other well-educated and career-focused men as Harry struggled to stay employed and sheltered. But they'd always remain connected with each other and Harry always held on to the little bit of hope he had that maybe just one day they would be. In May 1948, Marguerite goes to watch Harry perform in the off-Broadway play Sojourner Truth. Afterwards, something took over her because Marguerite gave him this big old hug. Now he's high off the adrenaline of the play and the hug and just the night overall. So during an impromptu stroll afterwards, he pulls Marguerite in and ask her to marry him. Well, technically, he threatened to throw her in the water if she wouldn't marry him. But anyway, she said yes, and they set the date for the following month. So on June 18th, 1948, Harry and Marguerite went to City Hall and got married. The night before, she told her parents, and you know they did not approve of this at all. They wanted her to marry an educated Black man, like somebody that had a graduate degree. Meanwhile, Harry's parents didn't approve of this at all either. His mom felt like they were too young to get married, and because of that, neither set of the parents attended their wedding. But at least one of Marguerite's aunt showed up just so she had some family there. Some of her co-workers from the Bethany Day Nursery attended the wedding as well, as Harry and Marguerite got married on her lunch break. And for their honeymoon, they went to a union lodge in Pennsylvania for 10 days. And by the following month, Marguerite was pregnant with their first child. The impending status of parenthood, coupled with the want to be a better provider and husband than his father was to his mother, forced Harry to get serious about his life. After they got married, Harry moved in with her at her job's dormitory. Harry got a consistent job singing intermissions at a jazz club called The Roost, making about $70 a week. His managers were Symphony Sid and Monty Kay. Yes, Diane Carroll's ex-husband. While this provided more income to the family, it also meant he would be gone more. Harry continued his singing career as it continued to bring more money in beyond that weekly $70. But ultimately, he didn't want to do it anymore. Singing to mostly white women when he could be arrested for even speaking to them after the show and couldn't even stay in nice accommodations. Granted, being flown out to perform in these different nightclubs all over the country was just something he wasn't trying to do anymore. Marguerite hoped that, you know what, this was the chance for him to finally get a quote-unquote real job. Something consistent, something that made him a present father and husband. Because shortly after his singing career began, they had Adrienne Michelle on May 27th, 1949. Now immediately, Marguerite's mother moved in with them to be the full-time nanny. And because his mother-in-law still couldn't stand him, he saw that as a way to be home even less than he already was. He called himself a 
part-time father at best. So then he decided to start a business with his friends Bill Attaway and Fernando Phillips, which was a casual hamburger eatery because you know how expensive it is to start and maintain a restaurant. We all know at this day and age how hard it is for restaurants to thrive, but that didn't matter. Harry didn't feel that way, but Marguerite sure did. Through this little endeavor, Harry basically used up what little savings he had cushioned away, which was about $2,000 because Bill and Fernando didn't have anything. And when the funds got low, Harry said that they would try to break even by basically leading women on that already had a crush on them for some quick cash. So eventually that ended and the restaurant shut down and he was back to being broke and went back to singing. After that, he finally landed a part in the MGM film Bright Road. And it would be there that he would meet the one and only Dorothy Dandridge. Harry admitted there was a quote, strong mutual attraction, but despite his marriage failing due to the stark differences between Marguerite and he, and even Dorothy's recent singleness, he alluded that nothing really happened between the two beyond a passionate kiss. However, Dorothy would say the opposite. In her biography, she said they had a brief affair as they found that they had a lot in common as being fair-skinned entertainers balancing racial inequities amidst their own personal traumas. Now, over the last several years of their marriage, Harry and Marguerite were really just playing married, like meaning they would attend parties and outings together occasionally, but Marguerite was miserable. These would be Harry's friends and Harry's crowd. They smoked, they were entertainers, they used their platform to just be very vocal, and that just wasn't her thing. You know, like according to Harry, she thought they were losers. Marguerite once said, quote, I just found the showbiz world to be shallow and false and more and more that was his whole life. Marguerite was a true academic. She got her master's degree and then would go on to get her PhD in Hollywood and just blatant activism really wasn't her bag. Though she did do a little bit of acting here and there. But we ain't gonna talk about that. But despite being in a very loveless marriage, Harry didn't want a divorce for multiple reasons. He said something that probably a lot of our grandparents and even great grandparents felt. He felt obligated to Marguerite and thought that if he left, that would be letting her down. He also didn't want to prove his in-laws right. In 1953, Harry made enough money to move Marguerite Adrian and Mrs. Bird from Washington Heights to a townhome in Elmhurst, Queens, which was a white neighborhood, which meant he was being able to provide consistently for his family. But you know, of course, that wasn't enough. Because in the following year, Harry would work with Dorothy Dandridge again in Carmen Jones, the movie adaptation of Carmen, you know, the Beyonce movie. Anyway, though Harry felt all of the feelings for Dorothy still, he definitely felt like he just could not leave his marriage. At that time, Marguerite was pregnant again. He hoped that this pregnancy would be the change that their marriage needed to bring them close again. But both you and I know that it wouldn't. While filming Carmen Jones, Harry's friend Marlon Brando asked him to just briefly entertain his girlfriend until his day wrap. Now this girl was a dancer named Julie Robinson. Julie Robinson was a former Katherine Dunham dancer that Harry actually met with Marlon years before, like back before him and Marguerite were even really a thing. 
Now back then, Marlon was extremely taken by her, but Harry said, quote, she was even more gorgeous than I remembered. Julie was dark skinned for a white woman, so Harry didn't even realize she was white initially. Their afternoon together revealed a very obvious attraction to each other. They went on their first date after receiving a blessing from Marlon and Harry said, quote, this was the kind of connection that could end a marriage, especially one as much on the rocks as mine. So you already know where this story is headed, right? It wasn't long after that that they began an affair. Harry would move Julie into his Beverly Hills rental and when they were apart, they would write each other. Harry was in love. Now that fall on September 22nd, 1954, daughter Shari would be born and days later, Marguerite would find the love letters that Julie had been writing her husband. And through the many brief, meaningless affairs and flings that he had while he was on the road, this was different and would definitely permanently wreck their marriage. Now, Harry would try to find meaning through therapy. He realized his marriage failed because he was seeking the approval and love that he never received from his mom. This also revealed to him that his, quote, sexual desire for white women was basically revenge against the prejudice he experienced brought on by white men. By 1956, his career was booming. His marriage was officially dead, but for appearances, they kept it together. Julie was very much in his life, but not publicly. They feared how this would impact his career if he revealed that he was not only with another woman, but a white woman at that. Now, he felt guilty for being away from his daughter so much, especially after such a long time. He said when he'd come home, he'd bring a lot of gifts to make up for his absence. And that made me think, does everyone with gifts as a love language had an absentee parent that would try to make up for their absence by showering them with gifts? No? Anybody else? Like, you tell me and let me know, because I think we may be onto something. Anywho, the conversations around divorce between Harry and Marguerite had begun. Marguerite wondered, how did my marriage get to this point? And according to Harry, it was his career. It was his left-wing politics. And it was her conservative and newfound Catholicism. It just wasn't going to work. I mean, ultimately, these two were always polar opposites. And as time progressed, their differences became more and more apparent. Later, Harry's oldest child, Adrian, weighed in on her parents' marriage saying, quote, Mom had the drive and focus of many Black contemporaries. She came from a family that was striving to be in the upper echelon of Black society, which then moves you into the middle echelon of white society. And for Dad, it was about changing all of society. On the other hand, the conversations about marriage between Harry and Julie had started. He was serious about Julie, but that didn't mean he was blind or that he wasn't any more of a man than he was before. Meaning, when filming Island in the Sun in Granada, a 23-year-old Joan Collins would catch his attention. Julie came to the island while he was filming the movie, but that still left him enough time to have a very, very brief affair with Joan Collins. Joan even confirmed this in her autobiography. Now, the news of Harry and Marguerite's pending divorce became public by January 1957, and by February 28th, the divorce was granted. But also around this time, Julie was a few months pregnant. 
About a week later on March 7th, Harry would propose to Julie over the phone. But before we get into all that, let's take a quick break and we'll continue about the upcoming wedding and marriage of the soon-to-be Belafontes. So after almost a decade of being legally bound together through marriage, Harry and Marguerite Belafonte finally divorced. At that time, Harry was in Vegas on residency and had the next day off. He met Julie, her dad, and one of his managers in San Diego. And then together, all of them drove down to Mexico. And on March 8th, 1957, Harry and Julie got married. The initial plan was to keep their marriage a secret, at least until the baby was born. But you know that did not happen. A reporter for the New York Amsterdam News, a black newspaper, pretended to be a census worker and learned of Harry's second marriage that way. He basically went to their home and Julie announced that she was Mrs. Belafonte. And they broke the news that possibly some assume. The Amsterdam News wrote, quote, Many Negroes are wondering why a man who has waved the flag of justice for his race should turn from a Negro wife to a white wife or wife, as we call her. They also wrote, Belafonte's popularity with his own race is hanging in the balance at the moment. Now, like I've told y'all with Diane Carroll and Sidney Poitier, and I'll probably tell you this countless times again, Black people hated to see their favorite Black celebrities with white or non-Black partners. I mean, think about it. That even still exists today. But you know what? White people hated it too. Like, I can like you, I can like your music, I can watch you in a movie, but don't go cuddling up to no white girl. Like that's crossing the line. That was a level of integration that was a little bit too far. Harry decides I'm going to control the narrative by writing an essay for Ebony Magazine about why he married Julie. And he would go on to talk about her activism and, you know, that they had so much in common. They're both entertainers, all this stuff, right? He basically reminded readers that, quote, wasn't the budding civil rights movement all about integration? It didn't seem like the marriage actually had any real long-term negative impact, honestly. And comparatively to maybe some of the other entertainers that were a little bit more salacious such as the one we're about to discuss next. During Harry's residency in Vegas, he befriended one Sammy Davis Jr. They were pretty similar in terms of when they got into the industry and their success overall. It was this closeness that made Sammy ask Harry to be his best man in an impromptu marriage to a black dancer named Larray White. Now, if you missed that story, go to our TikTok and watch because I already detailed that one. But anyway, the Cliff Notes version is basically Sammy married Larray because he had begun a relationship with a white actress, Kim Novak, and allegedly had started receiving death threats from the mob. Interracial marriage was not accepted everywhere at that point. And allegedly, he needed to pretend to be married to a black woman to get the mob off his back. Now, we'll do another episode dedicated to Sammy on another day. But anyway, let's get back to Harry and Julie. Now, one initial difference between this marriage and his last was that he got to spend way more time with Julie and their child, David. 
When Harry would have to travel, Julie and David often came with him. David was exposed to the figures and experiences his father had access to. For instance, like when David was three and a half, Harry and Julie took David to the White House where they got to meet with President John F. Kennedy. In another time, Julie and David accompanied Harry to Jerusalem. Now, I wonder if there was some jealousy or even residual friction when Harry's oldest two would reflect on the life that their father was having with their little brother. Eventually, Harry would flex his parental muscle and send his daughters to boarding school in Massachusetts. To be closer to them, he bought a 180-acre farm in New York. He saw this as the perfect place not only for his kids, but also his in-laws to be in one place together. Do you know who hated this? Julie. As Harry put it, quote, Only then did I realize how dependent we were, Julie and I, on the distractions of our New York lives to make our marriage work. It was wasn't a sign filled with promise. He said they were basically playing the role in the public eye, but the romance and the passion had long gone. He was traveling more than necessary because his distance allowed them to not have those very uncomfortable conversations they probably needed to have. And when they were together, they coped with being in each other's presence by drinking. He admitted to being unfaithful during this time and maybe she was too. Who knows? Sounds like history is starting to repeat itself again. And not only would it repeat itself in his marriage, it would repeat itself in a way that Harry probably did not expect. Now, Harry was aware of how his life impacted his children. He wasn't around as much as he used to for David and Gina, and Adrian and Shari were used to it. He would reflect on how, despite his imperfections as a parent, his kids picked up on some of those traits. Like for one, most of them found careers in the entertainment industry, but all of them would go on to marry white spouses just like their father ultimately did. Marguerite was upset by this. She did not like that both Adrian and Shari found love in white men. Adrian met husband David Biedermeyer when she attended West Virginia State, and Shari met Bob Harper at Carnegie Mellon and later would meet Sam Behrens and leave Bob for him. So what goes around definitely comes back around. Well, in the early 2000s, after 45 years of marriage, Harry and Julie's marriage would come to an end. At age 77, Harry would start over. Now, this is an age where a lot of people would, you know, just settle into the monotony of their marriage. Divorce would be too much, and you're probably already settled into what is, right? But no, not Harry. Before his divorce to Julie was official, he connected with Pamela Frank. Harry and Pamela met when she was in college. She went to the Bahamas for spring break with her friend, Neelia Hunter, and she would meet Harry until she was standing behind him in line at the airport. They would reconnect in the fall of 1982 at a play where Harry and Julie's friend, Diane Carroll, was performing. Pamela, however, was the date of the play's director. Outside of that, Pamela was a photographer that was very active in the anti-apartheid movement. It was through that that she kept in touch with Harry. And after his divorce from Julie, Harry and Pamela would find an apartment in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Now, they didn't make much fuss when it came to their wedding as they had already been living together and had already been married once before or twice before in Harry's case. 
Harry and Pamela got married in front of 30 of their family members on April 12th, 2008 at a restaurant in New York. Their wedding was officiated by a friend of Harry's, former Mayor David Dinkins. And Harry and Pamela would remain married for 15 years until he passed away on April 25th, 2023. Now, I've told you about Harry's three marriages and his family, but I haven't told you about his soulmate. Let's take another break and then we'll dive straight into that. Now, Harry Belafonte was admired by so many people across the globe. Though he had three marriages and two suffered the same demise, he found that there was really only one person that he truly connected with. These two had parallel lives and shared a bond that others simply couldn't understand. The person Harry Belafonte said was his first friend and his soulmate was the one and only Sidney Poitier. Now, honestly, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you about their relationship. And for anyone that hates male vulnerability and intimacy, you're not going to like the next few minutes. So when Harry met Sidney, but seriously, Harry met Sidney Poitier when he joined the American Negro Theater in 1946. They were both searching for meaning while taking whatever job they could find. Early in their friendship, they quickly learned that they had a lot in common. Harry said, our setbacks and hurts, hopes and ambitions were so parallel that each of us knew what the other would say about almost anything. For instance, they were both born in the United States just eight days apart to Caribbean parents and spent part of their formative years in the islands. Unlike Harry's time in the Navy, Sydney spent time in the Army and they found their way to entertainment with some struggles along the way. And while Harry had Marguerite, Sydney had Juanita, they both had Black first wives that came from good middle-class homes and conservative upbringings. They were both beautiful, light-skinned, with straight hair. And Harry and Sydney were both unsatisfied in their marriage to both of them. But on the flip side, their second wives were both white and Jewish, and they were both women in the entertainment industry and both empathetic to the causes and issues within our nation. Harry and Sydney would both go on to have daughters named Gina, and they would both have their own Shari or Sherry. And in 1993, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund would honor both of them as the first Thurgood Marshall Lifetime Achievement Award recipients. And in their 60s, they were both diagnosed with prostate cancer and beat it. Both were well-regarded entertainers with equal accolades due to their activism. But depending on the lens you look at them through, you may say one was more successful than the other. At one point, both men were acceptable blacks in the eyes of white people. Harry's friend Bill Attaway said, quote, at the present stage of the struggle for human freedom, the need is for a bridge Negro, one who serves to connect white and Negro. Harry fills that need remarkably. And although he is brown-skinned and unmistakably Negro, he is acceptable in terms of white standards of beauty. But Harry had a problem with being the token or even considering roles where he felt like the black character had stereotypical flaws or was just only there to appease the white gaze. One example I read about was about the movie Porgy and Bess. I'm kidding y'all. I know it's Porgy. You can relax. But anyway, apparently several black actors and actresses turned the film down because a movie was essentially about the romance between a disabled poor man and his cocaine addicted girlfriend. Harry turned down the role as Porgy, but Sidney Poitier did not. 
And early in their career, especially between the years 1960 and 1970, Sidney would film 17 films and would go on to win an Academy Award. Meanwhile, Harry would film none. Harry's protest of the roles he received made his career suffer just a little bit in the beginning. Now, Harry's daughter Shari believes, though they were best friends, Harry probably felt like Sydney had the career that he always wanted, like her dad was just a little bit jealous of the success of his best friend. But despite what was going on with them, they remained the best of friends. When Sydney was in a love triangle between Juanita, his wife, and Diane Carroll, his girlfriend, Harry was there to lend the ear. And when Sydney married the mother of his two youngest, Joanna Shemkes, Harry was the best man. And when Sydney and Joanna went to Vegas for their honeymoon, Harry and Julie tagged along and renewed their vows at a chapel. Well, even when you elope in Vegas, you need witnesses. And who do you think their witnesses were? That's right. Sydney and Joanna. One of the roughest moments in their friendship occurred after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. died. They disagreed on how to honor Dr. King after the funeral. It kept them from speaking for two years. But Harry said when he called him out of the blue, I believe in spring of 1970, it was like no time had passed and they never mentioned their disagreement that led to their silence. But truly, through the ups and the downs, and though I'm sure the entertainment industry tried to put them against one another, these two were kindred. To wrap, I'll leave you with a quote Harry said about his best friend. Quote, no one has the space that Sydney has in my life or that I do in his. Finding our way through a labyrinth of social history, we had shared so much. I don't know about y'all, but that was beautiful. You don't really get to see Black men be vulnerable like that. But friends, Isle Runners, Islanders, and everybody in between, that concludes this week's deep dive into Harry Belafonte. And before you ask, I already know, so let me just address it. You want to know about the Eartha Kit quote, right? Because I didn't mention it. Well, I mostly went off articles that I read in addition to his own memoir, which really didn't mention Eartha Kit at all. Now, for those that don't know, in Eartha Kitt's autobiography, I'm Still Here, Confessions of a Sex Kitten, a book that was published in 1989, she said that she had a brief affair with Harry Belafonte in which he told her essentially, don't get used to this, don't get too comfortable here, black women can't do anything for me something along those lines. And I can't tell you if that actually happened, if those were the words he used, because I just simply wasn't there. But I will tell you something. One thing I've learned, they're always going to paint themselves in the best light. They're always going to say the thing that makes them look good versus someone else. Did they have an affair? I have no idea. She said they did. So then that's her truth. And I guess that's what we'll have to go off of. But at the same time, we again weren't there. I know a lot of people have thought a lot of things about him, especially because that quote is starting to circulate again. I can't give you anything more than that, but I know I definitely had to address it because y'all are going to ask. So anyway, saying all that to say, as you can't tell, Mr. Harry Belafonte, with all the successes, all the accolades he had, he was still an inherently flawed individual, especially when it came to those closest relationships in his life. Now, if you do want to do a deeper dive into Mr. Harry 
Harry Belafonte, I highly, highly suggest you read his autobiography, My Song, A Memoir. It was a really great read and I think I finished the book in about three days. But you let me know your thoughts by leaving a comment below or crawl into our DMs to let us know what you thought about Mr. Harry Belafonte. Now I mentioned this once before, but I want to share your wedding moments on I'll Tell You What too. Send me your photos from your wedding or any wedding related event, like a bridal shower, engagement photo, engagement session, anniversary dinner, I don't care. If you got married 30 years ago or three weeks ago, I want to see them. And look, if you're not married, that's fine. You are probably somebody's wedding guest once, right? So all you have to do is head to the link in the notes below, fill out the form, upload the photos, and you may just see yourself on an upcoming episode of I'll Tell You What. Well, folks, if you have any questions or any requests, you can definitely do so by completing the contact form. That link is also in the notes below, or you can send an email to aisle at huidu.com. That is A-I-S-L-E at H-U-E-I-D-O dot C-O-M. That I'll sometimes be beating y'all up. I see it. And if you're planning your wedding or getting close to that stage, don't forget to listen to Who I Do, the podcast. You can find those episodes in this feed as well, whether you're watching on the tube of you or listening to the podcast through wherever you get your podcast. Please, please, please do not forget to leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast and make sure to follow us any and everywhere you can. As you know, we're on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. And if you want to help support I'll Tell You What, grab some cute merch from our Etsy like these pieces. But if you're listening and don't know what these pieces are because you can't see it, know that these pieces are shirts like the one I'm wearing or stickers or a mug or other just little cute I'll tell you what items you can get. But either way, just know I appreciate it. And if you want to follow me for whatever reason, you can do so at Demitosh on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. That is D-E-M-I-T-A-S-H-E. I hope y'all enjoyed this week. Don't forget to come back next week for another episode of I'll Tell You What. Brought to you by Hugh I Do. Bye. Thank you.